you can explore an exclusive collection of case law at Decisis Law Reports. Browse a comprehensive collection of nearly 14,000 reports of Irish legal judgments delivered since 2011. Visit decisis.ie to find out more. Hello and you're very welcome to episode 60 of The Fifth Court, a podcast on legal affairs presented by myself, Peter Leonard Barrister. Myself, Mark Tottenham Barrister and editor of Decisis Law Reports. Mark, good to see you as always. And last week we featured the second part of our interview with solicitors Sonia McEntee and David Peters from Nina. And you will recall that that was recorded before a live audience in the Law Society. And, you know, people love that. And they loved the fact that the guests who were kind of student solicitors asked loads of questions and the questions mm. were really good. They were, yeah, yeah. And, they, and, and I was genuinely surprised at how many of them were actually going to work in small practices like that because you, you have the impression that all the young solicitors are going into the big commercial Wasn't firms. Great? But they weren't. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, yeah. no, they were more than happy to go mm. and, yeah, and yeah. go around the country and hopefully, yeah. you know, continue that wonderful tradition of rural practices mm. and practices in the bigger towns throughout the country. Well, tonight we are back in the studio and we are delighted to be joined by Ian Drennan, who is the chief executive of the relatively recently constituted Corporate Enforcement Authority, which has replaced the office of the director of Corporate Enforcement. And of course, he previously was the director of the ODCE. So we'll be talking to him about the very important role he will play, policing corporate Ireland and the legislative powers he has under the new act. They can seize documents. They can search. They can even arrest. Mark, they can indeed, and they've got a they've got a big team, and uh, they're not afraid afraid to use them. Yeah, and I mean, it's this is this is kind of a new departure, and it's it's really an important development. I'm really looking forward to this interview. But first, we're going to look at three cases that you have identified from the Decisis website. In our first case this week, a litigant in person sought to bring proceedings against a bank. He had brought other proceedings against the bank and an application had been made for an Isaac Wonder order. We've talked about Isaac Wonder orders before on this show. A barrister at the time gave an undertaking on his behalf that he would refrain from further lit- litigation against the bank. However, the individual said the undertaking had been given without his consent and that the barrister had not been instructed by a solicitor. This is the case of Osborne versus Tyrrell and it's a decision of Mr. Justice O'Moore. Yeah, so this litigant in person, we know that, I mean, obviously there are times when people have no alternative but to represent themselves. But there's a reasonable number of people who who bring vexatious claims without being represented by solicitors. And it appears that this individual had brought a number of cases against a bank and the bank had, as is its right, sought to apply for an Isaac Wonder order, which for people who aren't familiar with the term, basically means that if you are the subject of an order, you have to make an application to the court before you bring bring further proceedings against that person. So what about the in- undertaking that he said was given by the barrister? And that yeah, he said so, the barrister so, hadn't been properly instructed. Exactly. Tell us so, about that. Well, this is what, the, in order to avoid the Isaac Wonder order, he said, well, I'm not going to be bringing further proceedings against the bank. So that protected him from getting the order. But that indication was given by the barrister who, as you said, had not been instructed by a solicitor. So the barrister had gone in represented him without a solicitor being present. And the court said, well, that that doesn't affect the undertaking. The barrister gave it. He appears to have given it in good faith. The fact that there was no solicitor there doesn't mean, you know, that that's a matter between 
this individual and the barrister that, they, that he, okay. can, he can push. Well, that's but kind of an interesting the, one. Once the undertaking be given to the court, it was enforceable. So no solicitor doesn't undermine the application? Apparently not. Wow, there you go. Got very interesting development. Okay, next case tonight is an appeal from the Labour Court by a fireman. He claimed that he had been working during his time on standby but the Labour Courts disagreed and it went all the way to the High Court. This is the case of Walsh versus Kerry County Council and it's a decision of Mr Justice Anthony Barr. Yeah, well, as you say, I mean, it's a very straightforward issue here. This is a, somebody who's working as a fireman. But obviously, like in a lot of jobs, you are on standby and the, you know, means that you can go about your business and it's only when the, the, the phone rings and you're suddenly told, right, in you go, we need you. And he tried to claim that that he had been working while he was waiting for the for the call, and the labour court disagreed, and the high court very understandably came to the same conclusion. Okay, there you go. Well, finally, Mark, tonight I knew there had to be one in there somewhere—a case about delay. Oh, yeah, Indeed. your favourite topic. We look at the issue of whether a delay of three and a half years should prevent a prosecution for a road rage assault proceeding in the district court. It used to be the case that a delay of over two years was deemed excessive. So what happened in this case, Mark? And I should say, this is Brady versus the Director of Public Prosecutions. And it's a High Court Judicial Review before Mr. Justice Simons. Yeah, well, I remember when I started out in practice, there was a, a, a case that everybody liked to rely on called DPP and Arthurs, which was a 2000 case. And in that case, I think there had been a delay of two years and three months and what the court had said in that case was that that was outside any conceivable delay that should have been allowed. And so you used to be able to go in and say, look, there's a delay of two years or whatever it was. And the court would be quite sympathetic to the application. That, the DPP in Arthur's point, was set aside in 2008, but in a case called Cormac and Director of Public Prosecutions. But in this particular case, the, the Brady case that we're looking at, there had been a delay of uh, of over three years and so they tried to kind of revive the DPP and Arthur's point and the, Mr Justice Simons was having none of it. He said no, that, that the, the prosecution can proceed. Okay, very good. Mark, thank you for explaining those cases to us and we'll be back shortly with Ian Drennan, Chief Executive of the Corporate Enforcement Authority. Silence in the Fifth Court. Okay, it is my great pleasure to welcome to the studio an old pal of mine, Ian Drennan. We had the good fortune, Ian, to be born and raised in that beautiful vale of Rathfarnham. You were more a Ballyroan man than Rathfarnham, really, were you? I came up on the main streets of Rathfarnham. Yeah, yes, yeah, yes. yeah. But that's back in the good old days. Indeed, Thank yes. you for coming in. Thank you very much. And you are now the Chief Executive of the Corporate Enforcement Authority, which is <laughs> relatively a new body yep. and replaces the old Office of the Director of Corporate Enforcement, Correct. which you were also the Director of. So yeah. we've loads to talk about. But let's start with your own professional background. We won't go all the way back to the mm-hmm. good old days in Rathfarnham because I know about all of those. Tell us, how did you get into this? You're an accountant by trade, am I right I am, in saying yeah. that? Yeah, yeah. I, well, after I left school, I pursued accountancy as a qualification. I worked in a couple of practices around Dublin and eventually ended up in what is the Comptroller Notary General's office. When back then, nobody would have known what that was, but it has assumed a much higher profile now. And obviously that is the entity that's responsible for auditing government departments, state agencies and so on. And I spent a number of years there. And I suppose the high point of that from my perspective is that I was fortunate enough to be asked to work on the DIRT inquiry, 
which okay. some of your listeners may the, be old enough to remember. This is the famous Charlie Bird and George Lee, was it? When they, yes, yes, yeah, 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 the yeah. bogus non-resident oh, accounts. Bogus yeah. non-residents, yeah. Go so back the, over that. That was fascinating. Yeah, yeah just so tell the, us a little bit about the that. The public, uh, public Accounts Committee initiated an investigation into that and as part of that they asked the Comptroller and Auditor General, who's a constitutional officer and therefore independent, if he would assist them. He acceded to that request and that I was fortunate enough to work on part of that, which was things including interviewing directors of banks who were in the market at that point around certain issues around non-resident accounts and how they'd account for them and, and so sorry, on. Sorry, just to, to, to elaborate a bit on this. In the, my understanding is what, what seems to have happened is that when once this direct, direct interest retention tax came in, people tried to avoid that simply by opening accounts in their local branch but giving a foreign address. Main Street, right? New York, that's and exactly so, it, yeah. And so you, were, you had kind of small towns in Ireland where the, the Main Street branches would have a huge number of these where the manager of the bank would actually know the people, they'd know perfectly well where they lived, but they, but they, they were colluding in this dirt avoidance. Is that, is that correct? Well, I'll, I'll, I won't use the word colluding, but, but certainly um, there was a disproportionate number of accounts in certain of those branches, which some of which were literally Main Street, New York, things along those lines. And on foot of having given a foreign address to those accounts, no dirt was deducted and that has subsequently transpired, gave rise to very significant tax issues for both the individuals concerned and the financial institutions. And it was nationwide, wasn't it? I remember it many NIB. moons ago working in the beautiful county of Clare. And uh, there was all Mailtown Malbay, wasn't that where it started? Wasn't that, it? There was a very significant. Yes, nineteen ninety two, ninety three, that sort of era. That's wow! Right, yeah. And yeah. there was a bank in Ennistime. We won't say any more, yeah. but uh, yeah, that was fascinating. So that was um, it. So I did that for um, about a year or so, and then I applied for and successful in competition for a position in the Department of Finance, which was to audit uh, European structural funds. So that was a new entity that had been established on foot of EU requirements, whereby. Department of Finance um, required member states to have an audit process in place for structural funds, which were enormous sums of money, obviously. And clearly that was a somewhat logical extension of what I've been doing in that you're auditing public money. This is European money. So I did that for a period of time. And then the Office of Director of Corporate Enforcement was been established. They advertised for some positions. I applied for one of those and got it, went in there. So the office was only being set up at that stage? It hadn't stage. actually been set up. So what, what, what year is that, Ian? That was 2002. 2002, Okay. Mm-hmm. So the position that I went into there was what was um, head of what was termed at the moment compliance, which is X number of years later is now what Barbara effectively does. So that was that aspect of the ODCE, which would have responsibility for promoting compliance with company law. So I did that for about two years. So that was developing guidance, promulgating guidance. And was that working with Paul Appleby? He was the first... The yeah. original of the species. That's right, yeah. And did you succeed him then? I did. Well, yes, okay. I did eventually. Not, eventually, yeah, okay. Yeah. So I did that for about two years and then there was another entity been established by the name of IASA, which is the Irish Auditing and Accounting Supervisory Authority, which in turn has its genesis in another, certain other issues that arose. But its, it's raised on data was the supervised accountancy profession. So I became the CEO of that. I had an interim board. I went in as the CEO designate. had nothing. So I ended up out in a shared uh, office space out in City West and we took it from there and by the time I left it was a fully functioning state body. Wow, okay. Yeah. And then you became the director of the I did IASA, of, yeah, yeah, but didn't IASA, I was in IASA for about eight years and then when Paul retired I succeeded him. Okay, wow. So yeah. that's, and that when was that? That was 2012. I, I remember he was about to retire at the time of the, the financial crisis and there was 
national mourning at the thought of this man leaving such an important position. They at the prevailed time. upon him and to stay. And they prevailed yeah. upon him to stay yeah. and he did right by the country and stayed on for a while. But little did we know that you were following in his wake, Ian. Oh, little did I know either. <laughs> if I knew then, what I know now. <laughs> Okay, Mark, do you want to come in there or will I? Well, I suppose uh, the, the, the question that you, you that maybe isn't clear to everybody is what, what, what changed between the OTCE and the development of the, the, the Corporate Enforcement Authority? Okay. Well, the OTCE has its, uh, had its genesis in what was known as the McDowell Report. Mm. So if you go right back to the McCracken Tribunal and there were all sorts of issues arising out of that, including, amongst others, becoming quite evident to the political class that there was effectively no enforcement of company law in this jurisdiction. So the then Taunashta, Mary Harney, asked Michael McDool, who was then senior counsel, as I'm sure you both know, to do a report into this and to come up with some recommendations. And that group, which he chaired, recommended, amongst other things, the establishment of the Office of the Director of Corporate Enforcement, which would be a standalone office of the department whose purpose would be to enforce company law. And as is quite clearly set out in that report, there was no enforcement of company law back then because resources hadn't been put into it. So even the most basic obligations under company law, which is to file your annual return, was not been done in, in huge numbers. Um, and were companies not being struck off for, for failure to... to there, was some, there was some strike off, but I mean, there was effectively, beyond that, there was there was no enforcement of any of the more significant non-compliance with company And law. companies themselves, I think I recall Michael McDool at the time saying that, you know, really the culture out there amongst the, you know, the corporate bodies was very lax, really, in terms of adhering to the requirements of company law. Is, is that the way it was? I don't think I'd necessarily single out company directors. I think it was probably, that was a manifestation of a broader culture that prevailed at the time. I mean, we have a, a checkered history of complying with the law, um, be that a result of our history or otherwise. But certainly, and we've talked about a little bit earlier about non-resident accounts and so on. So there was a whole range of aspects of Irish society. We've had a number of tax amnesties as well, all of which are indicative of our cultural approach okay. to Reluctance compliance. to pay, pay tax and in, various other things. And various yeah. other things. But that in, has all changed now. Has, we live in a beautiful new country where none of that would happen ever again, I'm sure. No, I, I mean, I don't, think I, I don't think I could necessarily say that. But I think things are are, are okay. considerably improved over the before they were. Can, can I ask, is, is is your position, is there an equivalent, say, in the UK or in other European countries of somebody who, who does that? I mean, was it, was it a big gap in our system that we didn't have somebody like that before the OGC? It was a huge gap in that there was nothing. Mm. I mean, the UK does the same thing, but it does it differently. So, for example, they have an insolvency service, mm. which deals with insolvent companies. And indeed, they the state will liquidate companies in certain instances. We don't We don't do that then their police forces around the, the country will do certain things and the Department of, it keeps changing its name, but effectively what's our counterparts, the Department of Enterprise, Trade and Employment will do certain things as well. We had none of that, which was what gave rise to McDowell's recommendation that we needed a, a separate um, office of the department that would deal with these issues. And so how much of the work that you're doing is effectively, for want of a better term, criminal investigation? I mean, how much is how much is just making sure companies do what they want to do and how much is actually investigating illegal behaviour? Well, I suppose if you'll indulge me for a moment, then I might just sure. take a step back. So there, mm. are, there are approximately 300,000 companies on the register thereabouts. The vast majority of them we will never have any interaction with because they just get on with doing their, their, doing their thing and providing they don't come across our radar or on our radar rather, we'll have no engagement with them. So it's not the same sort of relationship as, for example, the central bank might have with financial institutions where they're all authorised to, to, to do business in the first place or the medical council has to authorise every doctor in the first instance. We're more like on Garda Shia so we arrive at the scene of the accident after the event 
I, I suppose it might be helpful if I said it where we where our sure. work yeah. comes from. I, I, can I just bring you in there, just maybe by way of direction? I had a look at your website now for yeah. the Corporate Enforcement Authority, which is excellent. And we have Barbara present in the room, so I don't know whether you've contributed to that as well, Barbara, but it is really good. But I mean, you make the point, your starting point is you talk about limited liability and, you know, the the the, the separate personality that companies have. Now, for our non-legal listeners, I mean, that gives companies great freedom as they go about their business, etc. But but the, the, the counterweight to that is what you in your office do. So because companies have great free, freedom in the way they go about their business, they need supervision from a distance and that's where you come in, Ian. Isn't that it? Well, I'm glad you brought that up because it's very important to emphasise the whole purpose of company law through separate legal personality and limited liability and so on is to, to foster and to facilitate entrepreneurial activity. That's the whole purpose of And companies are enormously important in that respect and they play a vital role in our economy. And most people go about that. They still incorporate their company, they'll go about their business and I say they'll never have any dealings with us. The quid pro quo for that, though, is if you're going to avail of those sort of privileges such as limited liability, is that you're required to play by the rules. And, I, you know, the analogy I use is the state confers upon us the privilege of giving us a driver's licence. The quid pro quo is that you obey the rules of the road and you have due regard to other drivers and so on. So it's no different, really, in that respect. As I said, then, enforcement is reactive, whereas regulation is more proactive. So we will receive indications of or allegations of wrongdoing under company law. And that can be through a, a number of avenues. So, for example, we'll get complaints from members of the public. So on any given day, member of the public is perfectly entitled to make a complaint. There are certain statutory reporting obligations established in company law. So, for example, auditors in certain instances, i.e. during the course of an audit, form the view that there's evidence suggesting or such that uh, enables them to form the view that an indictable offence may have been committed. They have an obligation to so report they, to yeah, us. Yeah, they have an obligation to report. Yeah. Yes. Um, liquidators similarly have an obligation to report to us around criminality, but also when you're a liquidator appointed to an insolvent company, that triggers a separate parallel reporting process around the liquidator's assessment of whether the directors acted honestly and responsibly in the run-up to the insolvency and so on. Then in addition to that, we receive information from our counterparts in various other state bodies, be that on Garda Siakana, Central Bank Revenue Commissioners, or indeed from further afield from other jurisdictions. And then... You know, you, you open the Irish okay. Times or whatever and, the case may be. And just, just to repeat Mark's question, you know, the ODCE was there. It was performing very strongly, I think. You know, I mean, it was, you know, you seem to be having some success. So why this new body? Why the Corporate Enforcement Authority? Are there additional powers? Is it just a bigger organisation? Is there more work to do? So what what is the new body all about? Yeah, I mean, I suppose, as I said, you know, if you go back to McDowell, which was the late 90s, by the time that the ODCE became the CEA, 20 years had elapsed. And in essence, I suppose what we do had outgrown the ODC and that model, because that is a, at the risk of boring your listeners. The ODC was an office of, of, of a department named the Department of Enterprise, Trade and Employment. And that imposes certain constraints, if you like, on it. We're now a, a state agency, so we're, you know it's a completely different construct. But to give you an example, we now have our own recruitment license, for example. So we now go to the market, we're provided that we meet meet the requirements of that recruitment license, we have full control over our recruitment, which you need. If you if you think of like a medium-sized law firm, you know, you need control over your, over the people you're going to hire if you want to be able to achieve the sort of results that you aspire to do. So, so, so what you're saying is prior to that, you're employing civil servants within the department, whereas now the CEA, you, you recruit your own people. Well, from, as, as someone who is a civil servant, mm, I have very high regard for them. Of but, course, yeah. But the, the point is, it was more constrained in terms of how we could recruit. Yeah. Uh, and we had less access to the full market, the employment market, which you need. So that was a very significant uh, difference. 
And I suppose what the CEA and its legislative construct now is allows us to be ready for the next 20 years, if you like, or 10 years or whatever the case may be. Because what we're doing now in terms of the complexity of the investigations that we engage in and some of the issues that we have to encounter didn't even exist 20 years ago. You know, 20 years ago, I didn't have a mobile phone. 20 years ago, data, you know, you, you weren't seizing email um, and, and, inboxes. And in terms of the corporate kind of personalities within Ireland, I mean, the, the, these huge tech companies and huge pharmaceutical companies have really developed in the last 20, 25 years in a way that we couldn't have imagined then, haven't they? I mean, yeah, are, but you, I think, are you involved in regulating them in the same way as the sort of the, the, the smaller Irish companies? If it's, so. if it's a company incorporated under the Companies Act mm. in, in the Republic of Ireland, we have responsibility for enforcement when those issues arise. It's important to bear in mind, however, that I think it's about 99.8% of all companies in Ireland are SMEs. Yes. So they're, you know, that, you know, the, the, the huge big multinationals that you reference are a tiny, tiny proportion of our overall demographic. Well, what do companies. you describe as a medium sized company? Medium is off the top of my head is, I mean, it's anything with less than about 250 employees, I think, okay. or thereabouts. It's and then a, thereafter is a large company. Yeah, is, that, I mean, is that the way you classify yeah, I mean, them? Yeah, I mean, the vast majority of Irish companies have less than 10 employees or 15 employees. They're, they're, they're very, very small entities. They are people who are out there trying to make a living and deal with all the issues that they have to deal with in terms of... And Ian, uh, just before we, we move into more into the work that you do yeah. and, and the really important work that you do, just, just some nuts and bolts. As you say, this new, this new authority has been established. You're standalone as a state agency. Just nuts and bolts. I mean, how many people are working for you? Where are you based? All that sort of stuff. Just so people out there listening will, will get a better understanding of, of, are, of, of what you have. We're in Parnell Square, opposite the Garden of Remembrance. Easy to find for anyone who wants to come and find us. You're very welcome. There are approximately 80 of us. And that comprises of 16 members of Angarda Siakana who are seconded uh, to us. And then the balance is made up of civilians and they include lawyers, accountants, digital forensics professionals, uh, various other experts in, in, in various other areas. And that in total okay. makes it... So you have the, full, the, the yeah. full panoply of people that you need in order to yeah. carry out your work yeah. and you have yeah. the resources that you need. We're, we're very well resourced, yeah. Okay, yeah. okay, very good. And I noticed just in terms of the powers that you have, and I don't know whether this was the ODCE had these powers, but you have obviously the powers, full powers of search, seizure if you need to seize documents, for example, or whatever, and arrest. So that that's where obviously the guards working with you come on board. Yeah, I mean, we have, I can authorise someone under company law to make an application for a search warrant to the district court. But in addition to that, every member of Angarda Shia Kona carries with him or her their powers as, as sworn officers. So, for example, if we execute a search under company law and they, there's a you know bag of cocaine in the corner, all their powers as a member of Gardaí Shia kick in, they can do whatever the, if, is they need to do on foot of that. They have powers of arrest, obviously, uh, in certain circumstances. And that was, that was you know, McDowell was, was very, you know, he was, he was very far-reaching in terms of seeing as to what would be required and he and, and the other people who were on that uh, committee at the time. But what that allows us to do, as you'll appreciate, certainly in the more complex issues, people don't generally set out to breach company law in isolation or in a vacuum. So inevitably, if there's a breach of company law, there's going to be a theft and fraud offences dimension or potentially up as far as money laundering. And we do on occasion make recommendations to the DPP for charges under money laundering. So it's very important that we have our colleagues from Angarda Shia there who in turn then have all the, the availability of all the resources as and when they require. Your, your, your description of the kind of personnel that you have within the organisation does suggest that you're very much a criminal investigative body. I mean, you know, you're describing your website how you're involved in supervising liquidations and regulation of company law. 
requirements, but uh, but the, those descriptions make it sound as if you've got a very active role in seeking out bad actors, people who use company law for theft and fraud offences. I mean, I is suppose, that a large part of your work? I, I, I suppose the criminal stuff is, is the stuff that grabs the headlines. Hmm. But the reality of it is, in terms of where the bulk of the volume work, if you don't, if you like, is done, is you know we receive seven, eight hundred liquidators reports a year. There's a huge amount of work goes into reviewing those, challenging liquidators' conclusions, deciding whether or not to offer undertakings for restrictions and disqualifications to individuals, and that that gives rise. I mean, I think it's important not to lose sight of that work because that restriction disqualification, as you guys know, they are very significant public protection measures. They're designed to protect members of the public from people who have demonstrated an inability or an unwillingness to act honestly and responsibly. And, so and just to clarify for listeners, I mean, basically a restriction disqualification arises when a company goes into liquidation and then it is open to you as the Corporate Enforcement Authority to look at the actions of the directors and descri- decide whether they acted in, not not quite a reckless manner, but a, a manner unbefitting a, a, a director of a company. Yeah, I mean... And the, just a restriction basically means a five-year restriction and disqualification is still 10 years, is that correct? It Well, I suppose the, the, the yardstick against which you measure this is whether people have acted honestly and responsibly. That's in the context of restriction, which, as you rightly say, only applies to insolvent companies. So we would receive seven, 800 reports per annum. Generally speaking, about in on, on an average, about two-thirds of those companies, we will take the view that the directors have no case to answer. It's been a legitimate business failure. You know, your COVID hit, whatever the case may be, whatever other unfortunate circumstances, you're free to go, get back up on the horse and start again because that, in essence, is the point of company law and, and limited liabilities that referenced earlier. But in about a third of those cases, there will be indications that those individuals did not act honestly and responsibly and therefore the public protection measure kicks in and a restriction is in... It, what I'm, what restri- I liken it to putting stabilizers on a bike, if you like, which is that you can continue to be a company director but subject to certain additional safeguards, which is that whereas you or I can incorporate a company with two euro share capital, the requirement for called up share capital is considerably higher and that's a public and and creditor protection measure. Disqualification, on the other hand, can apply to a company that's insolvent or solvent and a different set of uh, considerations apply there. If there's been egregious behaviour in an insolvent company, uh, certainly disqualification can apply and the court can, you know, has... Uh, to, can I just ask you yeah. about that, Ian? You know, I mean, obviously you have the powers to go into the High Court and we're all familiar with high-profile cases, for example, the FAI. I mean, you're, you're regularly back before the courts to see, you know, in terms of disclosure of documents, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. There's a case that's going on at the moment. You, probably, you can't obviously talk about that. I think that I can touch on, on what it's about, I suppose. Yeah, the, well, the, if you can. I mean, John Delaney, and, and the fallout from John Delaney leaving as chief executive of the FAI. Yeah, well, that, that particular litigation that you reference is... Where that has its genesis is we have a provision under company law whereby if we execute a search warrant and in that context develop an apprehension that there may be privileged material within the the documentation that we've seized, we have an obligation to go to the High Court. So that was the genesis of that litigation. And then in 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 any particular case there where that happens, clearly the individual concerned or entity concerned is perfectly entitled to go into the High Court and to, to argue that the material is privileged and so on. And as we go back to the point I made very earlier, uh, earlier about how things have evolved, you know, back when I was training, a ledger was a piece of paper yes. was like three inches thick and there was dust on it and you could see, you could, you could hand that to a judge. Now you're taking maybe a, a, an email inbox. Chain, which or, goes on for, it could you be know, miles hundreds and of miles of, of paper, yeah. And to, to some extent, the litigation that you reference has been pr- as protracted as it is as a consequence of, for, amongst other things, but the sheer volume of material involved. Can I, can I just ask you about another thing? Yeah, and I mean, again, so 
as I said, you can go into the high court and you have full powers to do that and you have exercised those. <laughs> but this notion of self-declaration, this seems to be a new concept where, you know, does a director ring up or somebody involved in a company go out and say, well, actually, I think I'm slightly out of order here. Directors um, you might tend have, you might have to. Something, you might have something you need to look at, Ian. Directors tend know? not to. But more, what, what does happen is typically you'll get a blue chip uh, law firm will pick up the phone or write you and say, my client has something they'd like to tell you. Um, and that's clearly they've taken advice, which is the sensible and the, the responsible thing to do. And then the client takes the view that it's in their interest or that they have a legal obligation to disclose certain information. And it does happen, absolutely. Yeah. Wow, okay. Th- this is obviously a very exciting departure for you. You know, you're heading up a brand new state agency, which, you know, is going to do the state some service with great powers, etc. Are you looking forward to the, the future? Do you think there's a lot you can do that you couldn't do in your previous role as director of the ODCE? Well, I mean, absolutely, because we are, we've expanded as an organisation our investigative capability is incomparable by comparison to what it was 20 years ago. We have, and I should say that's not least through the support of successive governments and a recognition on the part of government that you need to invest the resources in these entities when you're dealing with the complexity and that that applies to every state body. And increasingly, you know, people, state bodies like us are are cooperating with each other to try and take a more joined up approach across the state more generally. Um, but yeah, this can, can I can I just a bugbear of mine, Mark? I know wants to get in there, but for my sins, I am a director of the RTE Credit Union, for example. Okay, and I mean, I see the requirements for regulation that exist out there now for businesses, for financial institutions. But even we we had recently we had a one, the wonderful experience of doing a live audience show in the Law Society, Mark, didn't we? Did. And one of the solicitors made a big deal about all the regulation. They're regulated into the ground and anti-money laundering uh, regulation and small enterprises and all that sort of stuff. Has the regulation got a bit mad, Ian? Well, you'd hardly expect me to say yes to that now. But I mean, <laughs> okay. but, but joking aside, our parent department is the Department of Enterprise, Trade and Employment, which takes the lead in driving government policy around proportionate regulation. I mean, it's, you know, government is, is, I think it's fair to say, acutely aware of the regulatory burden on business and, and professions and so on. But, and I don't profess by any means to be an expert in money laundering, but seeing as, you, if, seeing as you reference it, I suppose if you ask yourself, when's the last time you received a scam text? Yes, last okay. week. Last yeah. week, okay. Yeah. Well, every 10, 100,000 of those actually lands and somebody loses money. Sure. That money has to be laundered. Okay. Like I saw something on LinkedIn this morning. There's a phone stolen in London every six minutes. That's millions upon millions of revenue that are, that accrues from that criminal activity. It all has to be laundered. So there's a reason why there is a very yes, significant... Yes, of course. Of course. So we, we, we understand that. Yeah. But I suppose it's just... Um, there's only so many forms you can fill out with, uh, with, with, the, with ease. But anyway, no, I, I appreciate it. Can, can uh, I, sorry, sorry yeah. Mark, of course. Can I ask, going back to your, your criminal function, you've described you've got obviously a very good team of investigators. And you've described, obviously, how, you know, that you have the, the, the lesser penalties of restriction and disqualification. But once you find evidence of a criminal act, is it then like the guardies, you send a file to the DPP? Is, it, is that where it goes? Or can you prosecute yourselves in the district court? Or how does that work? We have jurisdiction to prosecute summary offences in the district court. We, in, in to all practical purposes, we don't do that because most of what comes across the desk is more significant in nature. And secondly where we can, and in the interest of taking a more proportionate approach and to deal with Peter's um, issues around over-regulation, we try not to, I mean, it's a criminal prosecution, even the district court, is a very serious thing to do. It is, yeah. And it's a very serious consequence for the individuals Absolutely. at the receiving end. 
So if there are ways that it's appropriate to deal with that, that we think we can, appro- we can deal with it and achieve the same end, we will do that. But the vast majority of what we do in the nature of criminal investigative activity will end up in a file to the DPP and then our officers decide whether or not to sure. direct charges and if so, in what venue and so on. Okay. And I'm curious about the, sorry, the, the, um, your, your previous role in the Controller and Order General's office, which was regulating state bodies. And I wonder, is there, has, has that position moved on in the same way as the, is the Director of Corporate Enforcement? Because I imagine that, that, that similar issues must arise in relation to, to smaller state bodies, uh, semi-state bodies, local authorities, and that kind of thing. I mean, is, 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 is there a similar requirement for those kind of powers for the Controller and Order General? Well, I wouldn't profess to speak for him or his officers, sure. I'm sure he wouldn't appreciate it. But clearly, audit has moved on, the risks that are around audit... The, the, the scale of entities, the automation, the computerization, AI, all those things make business more complex, which in turn makes it more complex to all of them. So, I, I mean, I, that's a very professional organization. It was when I was sure. there and it still is. Um, so I probably, just, probably better, I don't say a whole lot. They're, they're well able to speak okay. for themselves. Ian, this has been really fascinating. And just, you know, you, you've talked about the fact that there is an obligation on auditors, liquidators to bring things to your attention. You've talked about the fact that certain blue chip or non-blue chip legal firms might give you a bell and say, my client has something he wants to tell you and get off They're his chest. They're all blue chip. Absolutely. They're all blue chip. But what about the, the good old fashioned member of the public? You're open to them. You, you know, you, people can contact your office and disclose information that they think is relevant. Isn't that, isn't that uh, that's available to them? Absolutely. You can email us 24-7. You can call in. Uh, you can phone us. We are more than willing to, to and talk. And you're also a recipient for uh, protected, protected disclosures, of course. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And I mean, does much come in through protected disclosures? Well, it's publicly documented that we have at least one high court inspectorship that its genesis was a protected disclosure. So, Protected disclosure, I think, again, to, just to explain to our listeners, that's where a, a, an employee of a particular company has come to you with information about that company that, that might be described as whistleblowing. Yeah. All right, Ian, this has been brilliant. Thank you. Best of luck in your new role. Uh, Thank you, gentlemen. Uh, and uh, you started off, as you said, out in West, uh, West Dublin with a, a small office and built up a huge business. No doubt you're going to do the same thing uh, in relation to the Corporate Enforcement Authority. Okay, before you go, we also have a question that we ask our guests, uh, slightly, slightly you know, less serious. Any books out there, maybe with a legal team or none, that you might like to recommend to our listeners or movies, movies, anything you like at all? I know you love your music. We can recommend an LP as well if you want, you know. I can't think of too many uh, LPs that, uh, and you're showing your age now, um, but uh, I can't think of any um, music off the top of my head with a legal team, but a movie, I suppose, one movie that I do really enjoy that is, I suppose, has a very significant legal team is 12 Angry Men. I think it's a, it's a great film. It's a classic. And the best legal book that I've read in a long time is um, Administrative Law Nutshell. Really? Okay. And who wrote that? Who was that, Mark? You, you know all these uh, I, publishers. I, I should know, but I don't. Okay, it's not Your listeners Hogan will know. It wouldn't be appropriate uh, for me to, but... Um, and Gwyn Morgan, so it's not that. That's, that's slightly it, bigger. That's not really a nutshell, is it? Nutshell's bedside Slightly tongue-in-cheek, but uh, yeah, they've yeah. served me well. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> no, fantastic. Ian, Ian Drennan, Chief Executive of the Corporate Enforcement Authority. Thank you so much for coming in and being a guest on The Fifth Court. Thank you very much, gentlemen. The Fifth Court will adjourn until next week.
So that's all from this edition of The Fifth Court. We hope you have enjoyed it. Can we say a huge thank you to Ian Drennan, Chief Executive of the Corporate Enforcement Authority, for talking to us about the newly constituted CEA and all the wonderful powers it has, Mark. Criminal, civil, it's a a whole range and an incredible uh, team of uh, high-profile investigators. Any errant companies out there should Mm. beware. Okay, so before we go, I'd like to say a thank you to our producer, Conal O'Moroyne, and to Lee Brennan of the Dublin South Podcast Studios for the wonderful work done in recording this show. Thank you, Lee. So for me, Peter Leonard. Myself, Mark Tottenham. Thank you for listening and we'll see you soon in the Fifth Court. Never miss a vital Irish legal judgment. Check out Decisis Law Reports, where you'll find a fully indexed collection of all Irish judgments delivered since 2011. Visit decisis.ie to find out more.